Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Well, hi, everyone, and hi, Caitlin Long and Angie Dalton. Um, my name's Kathy Wood, uh, and I'm CEO and CIO of ARK Invest. Uh, this is our FYI podcast for your information. No, for your innovation. <laughs> a little play on that. For your innovation, um, uh, this is a weekly cadence uh, podcast, and I am delighted to uh, be joined today by Caitlin Long and Angie Dalton. Uh, I'm going to read uh, Caitlin's bio, or uh, I'll, I'll do, a, do it mostly from memory, but Caitlin I met in, it could have been 97, when she was a very young uh, research analyst at Solomon Brothers, uh, and then she migrated, migrated over to Credit Suisse. And um, she become, became very well known for her excellent work uh, on the insurance industry. Uh, she definitely blazed a trail, I will say. And she continues to uh, blaze trails. I think uh, she started uh, getting active in Bitcoin and, and blockchain technology in 2012, which predates even ARC's uh, involvement with it in 2015. And... Um, and then from 2018 to 2020, she led the charge to make her native state, Wyoming, an oasis for blockchain companies. Uh, so she's enacted, she's helped uh, enact 20 blockchain enabling laws in, in Wyoming. Uh, she, from 2016 to 18, she was uh, chairman and president of Symbiont, an enterprise blockchain startup. Uh, then she moved over to run Morgan Stanley's pension solutions business uh, and held, uh, again, as I mentioned, at Credit Suisse, uh, her uh, insurance role. And uh, she's a graduate of Harvard Law School, the Kennedy School of Government and the University of Wyoming, uh, where she got her B.A. Angie Dalton, I met in the uh, 2000s at some point uh, um, through Six Gallus who was chief investment officer at Jenison Associates, where I was for, for 18 years. And Angie uh, spent most of her time before founding her company uh, in research and banking, specifically in the technology sector. And um, uh, she's always been very interested in uh, government regulation and how it impacts uh, technology companies. Uh, and I know we've at ARC um, 
Angie's an advisor, we rely on her to keep us on uh, uh, keep us on the right track in terms of understanding how regulation, particularly in the blockchain space, uh, is is going to impact um, the evolution of these ecosystems. Uh, so I would like to start out this uh, podcast uh, first of all by understanding Wyoming, uh, Caitlin. I just want to understand uh, how how you've been blazing a trail there. Why is Wyoming open to it when uh, so many others are, are scared? Well, Wyoming was very interested in this technology from a, a commitment to property rights perspective. This is a state that values some of the same values that are embedded in Bitcoin itself. And the simplest one is clarity of property rights. We know absolutely who owns those tokens at any moment in time, and it's the private key with which they're associated. And that is something that that really grabbed a lot of Wyoming legislators. They were also very interested in an economic development initiative, very similar to what South Dakota, our next door neighbor, did in the early 1980s to grab a part of the financial services industry and bootstrap an industry in what previously was a a primarily agricultural and mining state, which is very similar to Wyoming. And 40 years later, there are 40,000 jobs in the credit card industry in South Dakota. So South Dakota showed Wyoming how to do it. And Wyoming spotted this opportunity to grab digital assets early. And there really wasn't much downside. It's simple risk reward. The state didn't put money behind this. They just enabled laws that made it legal and defined the property rights associated with it. And I will say I'm very proud of the work that we collectively in Wyoming did because it has influenced the national scene. Just this year, just this summer, there's now a model law that is very similar conceptually to Wyoming's property, what's called commercial law, the Uniform Commercial Code, defining digital assets. And uh, that just got accepted at a national level and is being rolled out to all 50 states now through the 50 state legislatures in the coming years. And they saluted Wyoming. And it's funny, initially they said Wyoming, they, they criticized Wyoming for jumping out ahead because this group tries to keep the commercial laws consistent across all 50 states. And uh, within about an 18 month time frame, they, they, they went from being critical to saying, yeah, Wyoming, you were right and saluting the pioneering work of Wyoming. And I'm seeing that happen again and again. That's fabulous. I, I actually didn't know uh, about that last point there. That's that's really interesting because we know that state-by-state state regulations contain a lot of friction in terms of getting getting the job done. So that's huge, I think. That's huge. Um, and... Uh, yeah. So the other thing, and Angie, I know, I know you have a lot to say about regulation. Maybe you want to co- comment on how significant that is. You know, one thing that um, that I'll just say to start off is that you know, Caitlin, I, I was uh, so excited to meet you at MIT uh, maybe five years ago because I thought, wow, I looked at your background. I'm from Kansas. You're from Wyoming. Very traditional Wall Street kind of background. About the same number of years. And I thought if you looked at both of us on paper, you'd think, wow, pretty traditional, <laughs> you know, kind of path. Um, you specifically 
much more than I have, have been a huge pioneer, not a, not only a pioneer to go into crypto, but a pioneer within crypto because you've taken this regulatory approach, which I also can't, it's almost like I can't not go down that path because there are laws and we live in, uh, you know, we live in a world of law and we need to kind of operate within that. And I do, I've always felt that it's possible, but you've really blazed the trail on that. And I, I just love for to hear your comments on the regulatory backdrop and and how you what what was your thought process when you got into this and following that path of regulation? Well, Wyoming was reacting to the industry saying, "Hey, we're losing our bank accounts right and left," and this was in 2017, so during the ICO boom, and there was a, a concerted effort on the part of the federal bank regulators. Specifically, we later discovered it was the FDIC that was asking questions. And the way the bank regulators work is when they ask questions of the banks, that's a signal to the banks that they are going to be dinged on their exam for doing business with risky industries. And so the regulators never say don't bank the industry, but what they signal is that their risk is going to go up. And as a result, maybe their FDIC insurance premiums go up, or maybe they're going to be limited in mergers and acquisitions or new products that they're allowed to introduce. Or maybe they're, they're going to have what's called a different cap rate at the Fed to reflect their risk. And so what happens is the bankers have been conditioned when they get the questions from the regulators to say, oh, no, I can't dabble in an industry. And this is why you see there are banks that specialize in the high-risk industries. It's not just digital assets. This is true of all industries that are deemed by regulators to be high-risk. And of course, digital assets is one of those due to the compliance risk. And so what Wyoming was trying to do was to solve that problem. How do we create a bank that is not going to debank this industry and help the banking industry that wants to specialize in digital assets to get a pathway where they could actually control their their destiny. So it's funny at the beginning I didn't I didn't anticipate starting a bank, uh, but but I've where, where we are now uh, is uh, a recognition of just how hard it is. And I think as a policy matter, it's way too hard to start a bank in the United States. And this is the reason why you actually see only a couple dozen banks that have been started since the 2008 financial crisis. It's a very small number of new entrants into the industry. And it's because the barriers to entry are very, very high. That actually brings up a very good question. As I've heard you speak and and in conversations with you, yes, you're trying to integrate through a more traditional bank into the the banking ecosystem, uh, this idea of digital assets. And, you know, I'm just wondering, given the ethos of the crypto native players out there, who are not trying to do that. In fact, they're trying to disintermediate the traditional banking system. I'm just wondering how, well, first of all, how you get along with them. <laughs> and, and, and if you're thinking about this as, if you're thinking about this as a stepping stone to really completely new infrastructure and rails out there, or if uh, you are, in other words, um, bringing a bank somehow insinuating it into that new infrastructure? Or is this uh, really um, a focus on integrating uh, digital assets into the traditional banking system? Well, it's both because there has to be a bridge between the two. And that's the essential observation 
that digital assets, if it had no on-off ramp between the traditional financial system and itself, could money couldn't move between the two. It would literally be back to the local Bitcoins peer-to-peer exchanges that were so prevalent in the Bitcoin world in the early days. But that doesn't work in terms of scaling. And so ultimately what we're trying to do is ensure that the on-off ramps are there and reliable so that legitimate businesses in this industry don't lose their bank accounts. In the United States, if you don't have a bank account, you're not a business. And the reason is that the IRS requires withholding taxes to be remitted electronically through your bank account. So the startups in this industry, there were a lot of legitimate startups in the industry that got debanked in that debanking wave in the fall of 2017. And ultimately, that's one of the problems we're trying to solve. We're also trying to, back to your, to your question though, Kathy, I, I, all three of us come from the traditional financial industry. We've all got you know, the scrapes and bruises of being in it for so long, the proverbial gray hair, so to speak. And, uh, and, and we also understand how really inefficient it is. And I really do believe this technology is, is better technology for moving money. It is ultimately, you can move billions of dollars for the cost of pennies and you don't have to go intermediary to intermediary, including central bank to central bank, moving money around the world globally. And I do believe that more and more of the, of the businesses that move money around the world globally, once it becomes more acceptable from a regulatory perspective, we'll start using these rails. They're very powerful rails. And uh, a lot of the traditional regulators are, are looking at it saying, oh, no, 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 we can't allow this. And I, we've all lived, lived through this in the last decade, especially working in the traditional financial industry. In the first couple of years when I was at Morgan Stanley, I did not t- talk to people about my Bitcoin interest. And I was going to meetups and conferences after hours and on weekends on my own time and dime and keeping my head down, not telling people that I worked for the traditional financial industry. It took a few years to, for me to even get the guts to uh, pop my head up for fear that it would be chopped off if, uh, if, I, if I revealed it. And then once I did, then a lot of people internally were coming to me, including the chief technology officer of Morgan Stanley at the time, um, because he saw I was a managing director running a business. And he said, come up here and tell me what this is all about. That, that was, I think, 2014. So, um, but ultimately, that's really what it is. It's, it's, it's a better technology for moving money. And, uh, and, and if we think about the open systems like TCP IP itself or the protocols like voice over internet protocol, those, those protocols changed everything. And yet, in the beginning, everyone thought, oh, we can't use those. They're scary. Or Lynn Alden actually had a really interesting tweet recently about encryption, open source encryption tools. No, we can't use those. Those are scary. Well, 20 years later, we're all using them every day. Uh, not even 20 years in voice over internet protocol. So um, I think that this is, this is literally an internet protocol to move money. That is Bitcoin. And in 20 years, we will all be using it. So back to your real question, is this a stepping stone? Yes, I think it is. And it's really because the, the, the flows need to work both ways. And this technology ultimately will be so powerful that it, it will become, I think, a foreign exchange cross through which a lot of, of international flows move, namely Bitcoin itself. And we will see central banks get integrated with it over time. That's going to take time. I'm not, I'm not one of the, the industry who thinks, let's just go around and try to pretend like the regulators don't exist. No, we've gone up, right up the middle of the fairway 
to present a process and a, and a structure, legal regulatory rules, supervisor exams, all of that, that, that comply with the existing bank regulatory structure. And, uh, and so uh, obviously the final chapter hasn't been written, written on that yet, uh, but uh, stay tuned. Angie, I'll hand it to you in a sec, but uh, I just uh, am, am backing up and thinking about the early days of the internet and how we didn't think that was going to scale either. I mean, remember all of the friction involved there. And I've always thought of the internet as, you know, transferring information, but really missing a payments ecosystem because no one ever thought that it would be involved in commerce. It was just a, a, a information flow and networks. And I just wonder, yeah, I understand completely what you're saying about uh, the internet, but I wonder if kind of the stepping stone gets us ultimately to that world where, you know, the payments, the payments infrastructure completes the internet. Do, do you understand what I mean? And, and how the regulatory environment will, will uh, be insinuated in, in, in that process, just trying to reach into the future a bit. Yeah, really astute questions as as usual from both of you, and 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 I think there's a really interesting angle with regard to the banking industry in the United States, which very few are attuned to. We have something like three thousand banks or so in the United States. The vast majority of them are small. They're not the J.P. Morgans and the Cities and the Wells Fargo that get so much attention. And those banks don't have the ability to make big technology investments. They literally can't afford it. And so one of the challenges for the Fed, being the central bank of the global reserve currency, is that it has to be cognizant of that because the credit creation that takes place through the economy, oftentimes, certainly to Main Street in the, uh, in the Midwest, the flyover country uh, th uh, that we were just talking about, that tends to happen not through the big banks, but through the community banks. And if the community banks can't keep up with the technology, then there's a problem, right? And so one of the reasons the U.S. payment systems have atrophied is exactly this, because the payments upgrades, systems upgrades are expensive, and the small banks can't necessarily make those investments to keep up. And so you saw it with Governor Brainerd's speech earlier this week about FedNow. They're starting testing on FedNow, and we have very, very little information about FedNow, which is going to be a 24-7, 365 payment system. It's essentially a big upgrade of FedWire. And the question that's going to come out is, is it using a modern technology architecture? Most of the banks outside of the world have been using APIs for years, application programming interfaces, but the community banks in the U.S. can't afford to have API upgrades. And so the Fed is walking a very fine line. Now, one of the interesting opportunities for businesses with the new technology architectures is to use that architecture to make it better, faster, cheaper for the community banks to obtain that technology. And now we're getting into the whole question of, has the banking industry had it wrong in building these big, tall, walled gardens over time? They build really complex proprietary systems and clubs that, that you know, you have to be let in. And they, of course, don't let outsiders in. Okay, but now here comes this internet payment technology where you don't have to be a member of the club. You just need a, you know, spin, you can spin up a Bitcoin node and sync it within the span of a few hours. And any individual can do that, much less a big institution like a bank. 
Okay, so now the interoperability question becomes really interesting because you don't need months and months of software engineers and time and effort and hardware to do this. You can do this in the span of hours. And so I think this is just this is going to massively level the playing field and help to solve the technology challenge that the community banks in the U.S. have and companies that are building those technologies to help scale into the community banking industry, I think are going to do extremely well. And you just don't hear people talking about it. But the most important thing is that you have to be able to use the open backend system. It's just like, you know, in the beginning, nobody wanted to use TCP IP because bad guys use TCP IP as well. Yep, they do. Um, but you create access controls that are super simple. Another insight is that if the banks had actually been doing their job and upgrading the payment systems and making them API-based in the U.S., that you wouldn't need the middleware, middleware providers. Our former CTO had a, a, a wonderful line, Stripe shouldn't exist. If the banks did their job, Stripe wouldn't need to exist because what does Stripe do? It's a middleware provider between the old antiquated technology in the banking system and the financial, the internet companies that, that rely on financial technology to move money on the front end. Well, you need that translation layer. That's the middleware layer. And the reason you need it is because the banks didn't build it because they're all stuck with this old technology. And so now, aha, what if a bank itself comes along and provides that? That's the opportunity. And that's where this technology, again, is so powerful. Notice I'm not talking about anything related to NFTs. I'm not talking about all the trading, all the things that happened in this industry in the last few years. I'm really focused on, the, on bringing this technology, this open backend technology that's so cheap to integrate with and so easy to, to be interoperable and, and for which there are so many developer tooling and, and code libraries and, and communities that have built an unbelievable amount of applications, many of which are open source, and bringing that into the banking industry. That's going to solve a lot of the technology problems in this industry. Super exciting, Caitlin. I love I love hearing your passion about this topic and 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 all of the um, what you just described is something that you don't hear a lot of people in crypto talking about. Do to to have this access, this broad based access? Do you need access to the Fed, and why? And how do you see kind of the whole working with the the the, the Fed with the states, the community banks? Yes, because one of the things that I've pointed out about the, this industry where the, those that want to just go around the Fed, even in the stablecoin market, the problem is that anything that touches the U.S. dollar ultimately clears through the Fed. So the, the answer to your question, Angie, is yes. Uh, ultimately, to plug this in, you absolutely have to have access to the Fed because every U.S. dollar clear, ultimately clears through the Fed. And so the, the pathway that it, that it takes to get there, different firms are using you know, different, different tools to do that. But in the crypto industry, there are a number of companies that are using two different layers to get there. And, and the fees, again, these are middleware providers because the banks don't have the technology to be able to, to deal with liabilities that settle in the span of minutes. Most of them have technology that updates their books and records once a day. 
Okay, so you start having liabilities that can settle in the span of minutes with technology that can only update once a day. I'm not talking about the big banks. I'm talking, again, about the large quantity of banks that all of a sudden you start to see how there can be a lot of real problems. You can have a bank have a bank run and not even know it until after it settles its books and records after the close. Right. So there's just a huge technology gap between uh, the traditional banking system and what's needed in, in these technologies. But to come back to your, your, your question also about, you know, is this a stepping stone? Clearly, the regulators are going to have to green light it, they, but at some point, um, and I believe they will, because they're recognizing that it's just going around them. But going around them is not a sustainable path either. And the reason I say that is the regulators have a lot of, of tools. We're seeing the SEC you know, it's taking them in some cases five years. In the, in the case of Ripple, it took seven years to bring the lawsuit, right? They have a five-year statute of limitations. And then with a lot of companies, what they'll do is just ask for a tolling agreement to extend the time. It, the, the regulators can come after the behavior in this industry for, a, for many years. And we've all seen this happen so many times. And so those that are not paying attention can find themselves in trouble fast, and it's, it's, in some ways, it's the clash of the East Coast model versus the West Coast model in tech, uh, which is right up both of your alley, because the West Coast model is go ask for forgiveness, um, and the East Coast model is go ask for permission. And I think the East Coast model is going to win out because the regulators have incredible power when it comes to financial matters. And, uh, and this notion that we can just do anything and go ask for forgiveness later, a lot of people are going to end up in jail. And uh, a lot of people are going to have made fortunes that were really just Icaruses flying too close to the sun because they, they didn't pay attention to the regulatory piece. And through consumer protection or lawsuits from attorneys general about deceptive business practices, all that is yet to come in this industry. And those of us who, who patiently worked with the regulators and asked for permission, I think if we look back on it in five or 10 years, certainly my view is that that, that will have been the right way to go. So, Caitlin, what's so interesting about what you're saying is the community banks. When I started in the business, which was well before you, but there were roughly 10,000 community banks back then. And so the, the, they, they have been consolidating because, as you say, they, they cannot afford or they, to uh, reinvest the way they must to keep up uh, with the times. But uh, that could change. That's a very interesting political and regulatory dynamic that I think a lot of people do not understand. So coming at it from that angle is really interesting. Just to throw, to throw one quick thing is, you know, the banking industry has come after us, right? I've, I've, been, <laughs> I've been called a terrorist in a public hearing by the banking industry. And there's, a, there's an awful lot that the banking industry has done that uh, has, is not accurate in things that have been said. But what's fascinating is they've backed way off in the last several months. And a lot of the reason for that, I think, is they, un they see where the puck is going, not where, it, not where it is today. And their own customers, their own constituents in the trade associations now want to get into this business as well. And now they're start. I think, in a way, it's playing out very similar to what I described earlier with the Uniform Law Commission about Wyoming changing the commercial laws and being non-standard. And they said, no, 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 you can't do that. And then within 18 months, they're, they're saying, well, you got this right and, and giving us 
got it essentially right, uh, giving us you know credit for being the pioneers. I think that's going to happen in in this in this industry as well. We just don't know how again how that final chapter is being written, and it's happening. It's unfolding in front of our eyes. And before we go into your company, Custodia, I'd uh, I'd. I'd love to get a sense from you about, you know, this notion of open banking, uh, you know, what, what you're creating here. What is that going to do to the incumbents? How are they going to react? You know, there are a lot of toll takers in, in our business and, you know, have really loved the, the way this banking system has evolved. And as you said, some companies being formed to get over some of the technological hur- hurdles, but in so doing, creating yet another toll taker. Um, so how do you think the banking system and, and, and the players are going to change? Well, there's certainly been an attempt to uh, <laughs> forestall, shall we say, um, the the the, uh, the the evolution of the technologies. I'll I'll leave it at that. And you know, you've seen that, Kathy, and, and really both of you in your in all of your businesses, where uh, the incumbents will try to fight back using the tools that that they can. And then I think I actually see, and we've experienced this, that there's there's uh, there's now a Oh my gosh, there is something special here. Let's let's roll up sleeves and, and figure it out. And so I'll speak generally to the Wyoming Speedy Charter. This is a non-lending bank charter. And and that's a that's that that at first was something that the banking industry was very allergic to because they were afraid that it was going to take deposits away. And, and in fact, actually it's not the case, the, the way the structure is set up at all. It's designed to be a charter that enables transactions and with some very specific benefits to those who provide custody services for digital assets. And why do you need a bank for that? The mainstream world needs a bank for that. In the retail world and or the, you know, the hedge funds that are willing to take uh, regulatory risk, they, they, they don't need a bank for that. But anybody who's managing money as a fiduciary or any corporate treasurer who's managing money for a company's business, they're not touching something that they don't know they have clear legal title to. They don't know what the accounting rules are. They don't know for sure what the tax rules are. There's just a lot of uncertainty to transacting in crypto without it being intermediated right now. Again, this the real question you've been asking is the right one. Is this, do we need these intermediaries as a stepping stone or are we just going around the traditional system? And, and I, think, I think it's the former, not the latter. And yet what we're doing is, is creating that that stepping stone so that they can peacefully coexist. And that's what the, the Wyoming Special Purpose Charter was. And it's so fascinating to watch how the industry in, has, has reacted to that. Because at first it was, no, you can't have a state go off and do something different. And, and now, in fact, actually in Washington, D.C., a couple years later, we're in, in Wyoming is four years into this process. It's coming up on the fourth anniversary of beginning to have conversations in the fall of 2018 uh, about the, uh, the bank charter in reaction to these entrepreneurs who came and told their stories about losing their businesses when they lost their banks and conversations that happened when they lost their bank accounts specifically and conversations that started happening with the Kansas City Federal Reserve as well at that time. There's a lot of record, you know, in the record about that as well. Senator Lummis has been talking about that. This is a four-year process and we don't, again, we don't know how it's going to end yet, but this is designed to be able to take these technologies and integrate them into the traditional financial system in a safe and sound way. And now at the federal level, you're seeing this, you're seeing those ideas copied. And there's a very simple reason for that because they're 
generally the right ideas. And again, we've seen that we've seen that commercial play in Wyoming already with the Uniform Law Commission with commercial law. And it's wonderful. I don't mind being and you know, all three of us have been innovators who've been um, criticized terribly for, for and, and, you know, every everybody who says who says something that's innovative and different is being, you know, portrayed as crazy in the beginning. And then it's great fun to see the, the world recognize that all we were was early. And, uh, and I think that that's going to play out here as well. Yeah, it's so funny that you say that because I definitely feel that we all have this thread. We're going to have to go out to dinner one time and talk about the, that thread of, you know, being a pioneer and, and being free to, I've always felt free, Kathy, I know, has always felt free to just be out there on your own and, and doing it. But we recognize, Caitlin, that it's really hard work that, that you're doing. I want to pick up on the, the point you made about lending, because the lack of lending, I would think, would be very attractive in that it also means a lack of leverage. Um, and I um, first started uh, following you and reached out to you when you mentioned the word re rehypothecation. So I credit you for helping educate our entire crypto industry on that on that point, because I was um, happened to join a hedge fund the morning after Lehman shut down. And I was, you know, behind the scenes Googling rehypothecation because we had $300 million that had disappeared and we didn't know why. And we were trying to figure out how could that happen? All of our other prime brokers have the money with that, you know, what, what's going on with the stocks at, you know, Lehman. And I think that whole concept is so underappreciated and you brought that to light. Can you just talk about lending, leverage and, and your approach to that? Well, let's talk about it in the context of stocks, because I think that's the easiest way to understand it. Why is it that when you buy a share of stock, it takes you two days to actually have it in your brokerage account? It'll show up as a transaction, but it's not settled yet. It's, we have what's called T plus two settlement. And the answer is, it doesn't need to be that way. It, 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 long ago, the technology constraints that we had, when we all started in the business, it was T plus five days, and then it went to T plus three, and now it's T plus two. Why are we not same day settlement? We could have a 10 minute settlement cycle, just like Bitcoin does. Why are we not doing that for stocks? And the answer is there are too many people making too much money off the fact that the settlement is delayed. And your security, while in between the purchase, the time you purchase it and the time that it's settled, probably is going to change hands. You know, it, depending, depending upon how liquid your security is and how hard to borrow it is, it could change hands, you know, a dozen times. Um, the average T-bill, it'll change hands. It'll be what's called repledged, um, probably on average three or four times at, at, at a period end, but intraday, I've seen estimates as high as 50 times. It'll change hands, okay? And each one of those, of those times that it changes hands, each one of those, the way the accounting works, this gets back to the Repo 105 accounting from Lehman Brothers, you'll re recognize that. The way the accounting works is that if you own an asset and you make it available in these pledged collateral markets, where it starts to become, you know, a hot potato and moving around the musical chairs. If each one of those parties records that they own the asset, okay, as long as they own a different dollar of debt against it. So each financial institution looks like it's solvent because they have an asset and they have a liability, but they've, and they're solvent. The problem is there's only one of those T-bills or one of those shares of Apple stock. And in, in the event that markets seize up, Everybody just hoards that collateral because they don't want to be the one who's running around trying to find the musical chair and there's no chair for them. 
And that's what you experienced, Angie, in dealing with Lehman. Um, there was no chair. And you realized that there, this, was a, this was a game of musical chairs. And that game still exists. There's a lot less leverage in the system now than there was. But there's still an, an awful lot of leverage in the system. And I've done some work with um, Dr. Manmohan Singh from the IMF over the years. He's the one who's, who's estimated the size of, he calls it collateral velocity. How many times does that T-bill get repledged and repledged and repledged? And each time it shows up as the same asset on different companies' balance sheets, but it's only one asset. And, and so the, the financial services regulators don't have visibility into just how leveraged the financial system is. And I'll, I'll close with a Another uh, very interesting case, the Dole Food case, you probably both saw this in 2017. Dole Food, the pineapple company, was taken out in a merger, acquired in a merger. And uh, long story short, there was litigation and there were, it was determined that more money had to be paid to the original shareholders. So they went to go pay out the money to the original shareholders and they had everybody file their brokerage statements and they added up the number of shares shown on the brokerage statements and it was one third more shares than actually existed. So your brokerage statement showed one third more shares than actually were legally issued and outstanding, according to the state of, Secretary of State of Delaware. And by the way, that's just the, that's a problem with Wall Street's bookkeeping systems. The systems are never in sync with each other. It gets back to this concept, Bitcoin fixes this because you have very clear property rights. As long as you're tra trading on chain, Bitcoin, very clear property rights. And these things, these accounting systems anomalies, whether nefarious or not, and I do believe most of them are not nefarious, but some of them absolutely are. There are hedge funds who figured out how to arbitrage these things and pick the pockets of mom and pop. And when I figured that out, it just, it just hit me in the gut. It was just unfair and wrong. And whether, again, these systems were created that way on purpose or not, there are a lot of people who are making a lot of money from them. And so we will transition to these better technology systems that give us clearer property rights and more honest accounting of our financial assets. And that's a wonderful thing. This brings up uh, before, again, we get to Custodia and we'd love to uh, hear you uh, talk about Custodia, uh, all of the exciting things going on with Custodia. But um, what you just uh, mentioned brings up uh, the latest the latest controversy in crypto, of course, was the Terra Luna meltdown. And as we watch that, I mean, it was surreal in a sense, but because of the transparency of the blockchains, we were able to see, you know, where who what was moving where. And it was really the opaque uh, the opaque financial system, Three Arrows Capital and, you know, all of the, the counterparties there that lost out and they're not transparent. Do you think that policymakers have looked at this and learned from it the importance of the transparency? I sure hope so. And some of them didn't need those experiences in order to learn from it. I'll point out Chris Giancarlo. He made an incredible speech in 2016 that I wrote about on my old blog uh, that is still out there on the internet if you want to read his speech, where he talked about this very issue that the regulators don't have the ability because of all of this reapothecation that's happening to look, you know, from the top down to the financial system. What does the, what's the aggregate leverage in the financial system? And that was absolutely true in the crypto financial system as well. There was all this three-card Monty going on, all this musical chairs. There were a lot more IOUs to Bitcoin promised by these, by these leveraged players than there were actual Bitcoins. And when it collapsed, it collapsed 
fast. And I actually think that's great and, and said good riddance that I, I, I definitely feel for those who were innocently caught up in it, who lost a lot of money. Um, and I remember being in that position. I, I got Mount Goxed in, uh, in, in, in some of my early Bitcoins. Uh, I lost in Mount Gox. So I've been through that. It's painful. I sat for a couple of years with, with losses on, on what I had left. Uh, and, and boy, I look at that as cheap tuition. And I hope that everybody else is able to take the important lessons away if they're in that situation as well. That uh, there were a lot of scammers. Um, and I, I put out a Newsweek article, a Newsweek op-ed, essentially saying, look, part of the reason there were so many scammers in this industry is because there wasn't a regulatory path for the good guys to get through. And into the vacuum came, the, came all the scammers and those that just thought they'd ask for, for forgiveness instead of permission. Um, and, and it is how slow some of the regulatory decisions have been made um, that, that caused, caused this industry to, to have the problems that it did. And in, in particular, I, I did call out one, one, which I know you've talked about before, the GBTC arbitrage. Um, that used to trade at a huge premium, and closed-end funds naturally traded either premiums or discounts, usually discounts to the spot value. But this one, because of the supply-demand dynamic, traded at a huge premium. And there were all these hedge funds that came in and started arbitraging that. And mom and pop investors who were innocent were caught up in that. And that was a regulatory decision that had absolutely nothing to do with Bitcoin itself. And so, um, you know, I lament some of these situations, but I also look at all of this and say, boy, is it teaching lessons, really important lessons. Bitcoin is is fundamentally a bearer instrument. You don't need to use a custodian if you teach yourself how to self-custody it. And the best investment you can make in your financial future, in my humble opinion, is to go learn how the Bitcoin protocol works and teach yourself how to self-custody your Bitcoin. And then you can start getting involved in some of the other aspects of this industry. But until you've done that, you're not really invested in Bitcoin. You're just taking a, taking a financial IOU from an organization that is opaque in most cases, and, and you don't know if they're even solvent. And that's exactly what we experienced with a lot of sophisticated players losing a lot of money in a very fast period of time in that May-June timeframe when, when you saw some of the big crypto companies collapse. Okay, now on to Custodia. Maybe you can tell us uh, how you are making waves. You've given us a little preview in, in terms of uh, our discussion so far, but would love to talk a little bit about uh, Custodia. Yes, I have to limit it to what's out there publicly available. Stay tuned. There, um, you'll you'll hear more about us in the coming months. We have a bank charter. We uh, we ap- obtained that in October 2020, uh, and we applied to get an account at the Federal Reserve at that time. We also applied to become a Federal Reserve member bank in August of 2021. And um, and stay tuned. Uh, what we're what we're really trying to do at bottom is to bring. It's not really solve a couple of problems. One is to have a bank that specializes in the compliance requirements to be able to meet the compliance requirements of U.S. and banking laws uh, with regard to this industry, which is a high-risk industry due to the Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering laws. Uh, however, it's actually, uh, you can comply with them, uh, and, and we've made the investment to do so and to do so in a scalable way. We will be bringing some interesting uh, products to market as well. I, uh, I think I'll just have to direct everyone to our website uh, uh, to 
get updates on the on the particular products that we have proposed. But uh, ultimately, to uh, to reiterate what's on our website, we're trying to solve another problem that's in the, the digital asset industry, which is that the settlement cycles for U.S. dollars do not align with the settlement cycles for digital assets. We, we alluded to this earlier that most banks update their books and records once a day and don't have the ability to do real-time updates. And anyone who's, who's dabbling in digital assets really does need the ability to do real-time updates in their systems. Uh, and uh, there are some banks that are tech forward that are building those capabilities, uh, but it's not the average bank uh, for sure. I'd like to just pick up on one point you just made uh, when you first you know, entered this space and a lot of the banks attacked you. I think it's uh, really interesting that you speak their language, you understand the law, and you are also um, asking for permission. I think that you know, in the crypto community, there are always these narratives that go around. And, and one of them recently is, oh, you know, these regulators, they're all about enforcement. And it's like, yes, that's what they do, <laughs> enforce the law. And what you're doing is something different, which is really hard and showing them there is a path here that is regulatory compliant. That's not in their normal kind of day-to-day activity, but if we can get there, you could actually bring in so many banks to the future. And so it's it's really exciting. And I can't imagine that regulators wouldn't see this as almost a gift because nobody else is doing it. You know, other people are trying to kind of hide and hope they don't get kind of noticed, but eventually, you know, of course they will. So, you know, how long do you think this will take for regulators to, to kind of say, okay, now we have the roadmap? Well, the CFTC has it already. The SEC has, has it to some extent, and the bank regulators are getting there. I think it's worth noting that there are factions within each of those organizations that I just laid out within the US, and by the way, probably globally as well, there are some factions that are very pro-innovation and pro-digital assets, and they get it, and they understand that this is inevitable, and the right thing to do is to figure out how to integrate it in a safe and sound way. There are some that are absolutely opposed to it on you know, 18 ways from Sunday, so to speak, just never over my dead body. And I think those factions exist everywhere um, inside, inside the regulators, inside the big banks, inside the, um, and even inside the crypto companies, right? You see it in the internecine wars that we have between the Bitcoiners and the Ethereum um, crowd and then the altcoin crowd, right? And they, they all just sort of argue with each other. And uh, what, what I've thought over time, though, is having been involved with the Wyoming legislative effort is that the governments cannot and should not pick the winners on the technology. Uh, it goes back to the Clinton administration's approach in the 1990s, which is first do no harm. Uh, some of my law school colleagues actually worked for the for, in the Clinton White House one in one case on that exact policy, and boy, did that do do well for the United States. Uh, just basically step back and and let it evolve. Now that said, the financial services industry, right? This is money, right? You're talking about consumer protection. All of those issues start to come into play, and it's never going to be as hands off as it was with TCPIP itself. But that said, I've defended the SEC against some of its critics. They could have cracked down a lot harder than they did. And in fact, when you saw some of the outright scammers and criminals doing things that were deceptive and the SEC didn't crack down very fast, 
that I think is the more valid criticism than the criticism from the industry, which is, which is also valid, which is no one really knows what a security is. Tell, you know, it, it, the whole notion of just come in and meet with us. Well, a lot of people have done that and five years later, they're still waiting to get clarity. And that is a frustration I understand. And so there, there, I think there does need to be a faster process. But just if you look at um, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, uh, she's been saying that all along, and yet, it, unfortunately, she's a, she's in the minority. She's not she's not been able to get the staff at the SEC or the rest of her commissioners to agree with her, so that that becomes the policy. And it's just a it's just a case that illustrates the point that the regulators themselves haven't haven't figured all this out yet. Next week, I think, is interesting because the agency's responses to the president's executive order are due. And that's going to be coming out. I think there's going to be some interesting, uh, interesting angles on all this because the executive order came out before the crash and we've since had the crash. And so what's, what is going to be the reaction of the different agencies that have to respond to the president's executive order um, in the post-crash world? Uh, they're all jockeying for power. Everybody you know, wants to make it seem like with the old proverbial phrase, uh, they don't want to let the crisis go to waste. Um, and, and so let's see what comes out of it. And I suspect it's going to be a mishmash. So uh, before we wrap, I'd love um, to get our bearings in the investment world. Uh, I usually ask questions about companies um, and uh, that might be competitive. So could you compare and contrast what uh, you're going to be doing vis-a-vis Circle uh, and Silvergate in this world. And, and then I'd like to ask, and this would be for, uh, uh, you know, very commonly held stocks out there, Visa and MasterCard. Just want to hear you talk about, uh, and maybe we'll close with that, talk about, you know, the innovators and those who have enjoyed uh, the way the banking industry has evolved and, you know, what you think is going to happen to both. Well, let's talk about the card networks first, because I think those are, it's an insightful question to ask that crypto might be compared to them because they have really powerful networks. Why is it that in spite of all of the lawsuits and all, I mean, it, it would be, it, the infrastructure that they have is not that difficult to replicate and no one's replicated it successfully. What is it that is the moat around their business? It's the network. It's the network effects that they've been able to build that have been able, that they've been able to defend their margins. And in fact, I think they, they probably have the market power if they wanted to, to have even higher margins because they, they're the ones that built those powerful networks. And I think um, Visa in particular talks about the network of networks. And absolutely, that's what I buy into. The whole notion of having proprietary big walled gardens, mine, 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 nobody else can, can get in, inside my garden is ex exactly the opposite of what has made those companies so successful. And so I think it's very interesting that they've gone down the path of, of of working with digital assets. They're, they're mainstream players that can't get involved with digital assets that have the legal and regulatory and um, accounting and tax uncertainty that traditional digital assets do. Okay, so they've got a really interesting incentive to try to figure out how to get regulated players that can bring them the clarity on that. Uh, and they've been pretty actively involved as, as they've been publicly saying in, in, those, in those spaces. So I don't look at this as the way that the hardcore um, sort of, you know, Bitcoin only crowd would look at it as we've got to basically disintermediate the card companies. 
yes, in ways they will be disintermediated, but in fact, they're really powerful networks that once they plug into these technologies can actually bring these technologies because of the network of networks um, to incredibly high network effects as an incredibly high adoption. And because of the way these, these uh, blockchain protocols work, the higher the adoption, it's a it's a it, it's a virtuous cycle. The more users, the more um, the more hash rate comes into the network. The price over the long haul is correlated with the hash rate, right? It's a virtuous cycle. Network becomes more and more secure, um, and and so uh, so I think that that I, I would welcome them, not not shun them from participation in this industry. And I and look at what they've been doing. They've been working around the edges so that they're ready to come in uh, when when a clear pathway opens up. Uh, and then in terms of the the crypto companies, you know, it's so interesting. Um, Looking, I, I, I've said this before, Silvergate, it, the industry wouldn't be where it is today without Silvergate having done what it did, which is basically say, all right, when I got pressure from the regulators, which I don't know occurred, but I presume because all the banks got pressure in 2017. And they said, you know, there's something here. Let's roll up sleeves and specialize in this. And had they not done that and, and, um, and, and Signature and Metropolitan, we wouldn't be where we are as an industry. I talk a lot about the concentration of banking services in this industry as a risk. And Ryan Selkis has talked about this as well. It's a single point of failure risk. It's so ironic that in the, in the crypto industry, which is uh, in a lot of cases, folks think is designed to disintermediate the banks. The, one of the biggest risks is that there's such concentration in, in banking services in this industry. Because if something were to happen to one of those banks, and they're not large banks in the grand scheme of things, when you compare them to the big banks, they're pretty small. If something were to happen to one of them, then what are the ripple effects to the rest of the industry? That's the question to think about in terms of risk. And I've been thinking about it hard for four years. Again, I just hats off. Um, they've 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 basically blazed the trail, uh, and I'm sure helped with the regulators on on the back end as well. And then in terms of the of the the crypto industry, the stablecoin providers, it's fascinating what's going to happen with stablecoins because at some point they become too big, and they do start to pose financial system stability risks. And you've seen the the regulators talk about this, and they're right because it, it's not because you think it's actually because of how the assets are invested in T-bills. We talked earlier about rehypothecation. The banks fund themselves in what's called the repo market and other securities financing and pledge collateral markets. That Those T-bills are the lifeblood of those markets. And if they start getting squirreled away, put away in a silo, and they're not available to be repledged, then that's effectively a deleveraging stressor on the market. And there's already, believe it or not, a shortage of T-bills and other what's called HQLA, high-quality liquid assets. There's already a shortage of them. In spite of all the, the issuance of T-bills that has happened as the deficits have increased, there's a shortage of them because of the leverage in the industry. It hasn't deleveraged down to the, the current availability of those. And now if we start pulling them out, it starts to create stresses on the mainstream industry, and that the regulators care a lot about. And so, you know, when it's a $20 billion industry, no one cares. But when it's a $200 billion industry, all of a sudden that's getting a lot of people's attention. And the, the, the regulators really, if you go back and look at how they reacted to our industry, it wasn't until Facebook Libra came about that they suddenly started caring about our industry. Why? It's what I'm just talking about now. They were very worried. The ECB wrote a paper that said Facebook Libra will become a $3 trillion collateral sinkhole. 
and basically pull all that high quality, all those high quality liquid assets out of the collateral markets, and then the banks will have trouble funding themselves, and then the central banks have to come in and, and backfill. Um, and, and they're right. That's exactly right. And so ha- to the extent that these get bigger and bigger and they're sitting outside the system, they start to pose more financial stability problems. And the regulators, I think, can't let that keep happening. And so what will happen with stable coins is a fascinating question. Is there going to be a pathway open for everybody to go get a bank charter? If that's the case, there's going to be a very interesting upgrade that has to happen, um, both in terms of capital. You'd be floored at how thin the capital is in most of the crypto intermediaries balance sheets. And in some cases, they have negative equity. You cannot be a bank with negative equity. You're going to have to raise a staggering amount of capital in order to comply with the bank capital requirements. Okay, so that's one issue. Another issue is the is the bank level Bank Secrecy Act compliance requirements. Uh, There is nobody complying with those in the crypto industry right now because nobody's a bank. And as a result, um, um, the closest is, of course, um, Anchorage, which is an OCC trust company. uh, And you can see what um, if you you can see what happened with um, with a cease and desist order. Uh, for that. And so bank level um, compliance is different than non-bank level compliance. And, um, and, and boy, um, I, this industry, I think, um, has a lot of upgrading that is going to have to be done if it ends up becoming banks. Uh, so, you know, we'll see how that all plays out. But stable coins, I think, can't stay the way they are right now because they're siloing too much collateral. And one, one, last, um, one last quick thing to add about the siloing of collateral um, is that very recently the collateral reports of the stablecoin issuers, the monthly attestation reports, have come out uh, and put actual QCIP numbers on the T-bills. The moment that happens, you know those T-bills really are siloed and they're not available to be repledged in the, in the repo and, and other securities financing markets. It's, it's exactly the point that some of us have been raising for a while, that this is unsustainable. And so there's been all this pressure on the stablecoin issuers to get all the commercial paper out of their portfolios and go to T-bills. And now that's going to swing the other way and say, you can't be in T-bills, you're siloing collateral now. But how does the, what's going to give? Something's going to give, I think, at some point. And I don't know how that's going to play out. That's fascinating. This is the last question, I promise. And thank you for uh, both of you for uh, spending all of this time uh, with us. But do you believe that this phenomenon, which you described in terms of treasury bills, is already, it has to be impacting the market. I'm just looking at the turmoil and the volatility in the markets, and you've got the Fed on top of this, creating all kinds of um, consternation. Do you think this is already at work or is it still too small? Is it already, is the impact already significant enough for us to be considering uh, or is it still too small? It's something we, we need to worry about in the future. No, I think it's already there. It's small, but it's already there. Just look at the words that the regulators have been saying about the financial stability risks. And, and you know, to the outsider that's not an expert in how all these things work, you're probably scratching your head saying, how is it that a stable coin, like, for example, um, in the case of Tether, which it, it, in theory doesn't come on shore in the U.S., how would, it, how would that be creating financial system stability issues in the U.S.? Well, it's indirect. It's through these, the siloing of these T-bills. And again, now, that just in the last month, they started reporting actual QCIP numbers. Nobody's going to touch those T-bills now because those are supposed to be siloed in the portfolios of the, of the 
stablecoin issuers. And so they're basically completely and forever squirreled away out of the repo market. So, yeah. And and if there were to be a run, you know, we haven't seen a run on the fiat-backed stablecoins. The run that we saw was on Terra Luna. So to answer your question about is this impacting things now, that got a lot of people really focused on not the impact on T-bills because Terra Luna was an algorithmic stablecoin. It didn't touch T-bills at all. But what that showed to the regulators was how fast the liabilities can just come unwound. And that stablecoin, Luna, which was the, the, the mechanism to create the stability for the stablecoin algorithmically, dropped from $80 to, to pennies in the span of minutes. Um, and so when you think about the term structure of liabilities in the traditional financial industry, really nothing settles that fast, right? Fedwire, you might be able to get settled in the span of an hour or two. Um, but ACH settles, you know, next day or a couple of days. Securities settles T plus two days. T-bills themselves settle T plus one day, right? There's nothing that settles that fast it, it, except for cash, but cash has physical limitations. If you walked into your bank and said, I want to withdraw $100,000, they're not going to give it to you. They'll give you $10,000 um, and then you got to figure out how to move it, right? And so there's really nothing that settles as fast as the liabilities of, of digital assets. And that poses all kinds of interesting financial stability questions. Even with stablecoin issuers that are sitting 100% in T-bills that are siloed away with actual QCIP numbers, if, the, if those stablecoins were to collapse in the span of minutes and they can't liquidate their T-bills until the next day, now you can start to see how financial stability issues start to come to play. The lead bank regulator of the, at the national level, um, Michael Sue, the OCC commissioner, made a speech about this very issue in, uh, I think it was April. And you could just see that the regulators' views on this whole liquidity issue really evolved. It used to be that they wanted only insured depository institutions under the president's working group's original recommendation for stablecoins, that, that only insured depository institutions were supposed to issue stablecoins. They've backed way off that now because they understand that introducing that risk into the insurance, in, in, in the deposit insurance fund at the FDIC is absolutely not the right thing to do. Um, and so they're, they're getting to the right place. And I'm excited about it because I do think that it will end up in the right place. Um, and, they're, and they're focused on the right issues, which, which is a really good sign as well. I love talking to you, Caitlin, and, and, and obviously to you, Kathy. We talk all the time, but I learn something new every single time I hear you speak. It's really incredible. I mean, I have to ask one fun question. Last question. We said last question a few times, but when I actually worked as a summer associate in 1998, Goldman Sachs was nice enough to give me an offer to live in New York City. And I turned it down because I said, you know, I'm from Kansas. I could never live here. Of course, 23 years later, I'm still here. Wyoming is obviously very happy to get you back. How do you feel about leaving New York City and going home to Wyoming? Oh, I love it. It's so great to be back here for so many reasons. I always knew I'd eventually come back, but I figured it'd be in retirement. <laughs> and that didn't, I, that didn't last very long. So, um, but yeah, it's home. And I, I, you know, I never, I've always just loved it and joke that when I went to New York, my goal became, how do I get back home? But I suspect you, you ran into this growing up as well, that you just wanted to leave and go, to, go out and explore the big world. And I did, and then realized Wyoming's a pretty great place. And uh, it's so business friendly. And uh, you know, it's also everything that Wyoming has done has been done on a bipartisan basis. And it's now 
Uh, it's been five different legislators, legislatures um, sessions that have embraced this and two different governors. So this is so much bigger than, than any of us individually working to bootstrap this industry in, in Wyoming. And it's just so much fun. I, I take great pleasure in learning that new companies have come to Wyoming and, uh, you know, a lot of seeds got planted and it's just fun to sit and watch them grow. Yep. I like ending on that optimistic note, growth, innovation and growth. Innovation is key to growth. That is one of ARK Invest's taglines. So thank you so much, Caitlin and Angie. Um, this, uh, as Angie said, we, I, we both learned so much about both the traditional financial system and uh, crypto in a way, especially the stable coins. So thank you very much. I think this is a great service to uh, the community, the, the financial services community generally, and, and to the crypto community as well. So uh, again, thank you, uh, Caitlin. Likewise. Yes. All right. And all the best to you. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thanks. Bye. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.